Hang around people who have acquired wisdom, achieved happiness. Listen as they talk about what has helped them succeed. And take it from me, there's plenty we can borrow and adapt that will help us thrive. My guest Ray Cole has done that during his five-decade career as a respected television executive. And Ray wrote a book all about it, Hanging with Winners. He shares wisdom from dozens of inspiring figures like Michael J. Fox, Jimmy Kimmel, Diane Sawyer, Robin Roberts, sports figures like Dick Vitale and Jay Williams, and elite executives like Bob Iger of Disney and George Bodenheimer, who ran ESPN. In this conversation, Ray and I touched on themes like leadership, integrity, curiosity, gratitude, acceptance, and many more principles that help create success. You've talked to and been involved with so many successful people and there's different definitions for success and there's many qualities that go into that depending on the individual and the circumstances. But what, what common threads Ray, did you find among people who have, who have been inspirational, defied odds and, and, and achieved, and I don't mean just financial success and I don't mean even success as defined by others, but in their own way. When I set out to write this book, what I wanted to accomplish was <clears throat> helping people learn from others in a way where they could maybe shape their own destiny, where they could learn lessons from others, um, recognizing that being a winner is not a word uh, that you put on a resume or in a bio, uh, but it is a, a, a word that means different things to different people, but ultimately it conveys uh, a happiness uh, and a level of success uh, hopefully in your life in a way that goes beyond the traditional definition of being successful, much as you pointed out. So what are some of those things? All the people we talked to, we interviewed over 80 people for the book. Uh, they, they would all start with something that is really foundational, and that's your character. And in a word that flows from character is your integrity and how you have to build that, you have to protect it, you have to guard it, um, and you have to use it. And what flows from character then is what they would all cite uh, as truly foundational, which is showing others and treating others with kindness and respect and empathy. So that's where I would start, foundation one. And then what was interesting to me was how many people that we interviewed, how many winners cited the trait of curiosity, being and remaining curious. Um, that would I not be the, the, the top, that surprised you a bit. That wouldn't have been what you might expect to hear. One of the top no, things that, that, that successful no, people embody. I, I, it wouldn't have surprised me that it was on the list. Uh, and in, in my chapter seven, where we bring all the, the wisdom from the previous six chapters together in little nuggets, it wouldn't have surprised me that it was on the list. It surprised me that it was cited so often, so frequently as something that is truly critical, you know, and they, you know, when they would cite that, what they would do is they would uh, talk about um, the importance of curiosity when it comes to developing new relationships. Uh, they would talk about how important it is to, you know, uh, helping you shape your perceptions uh, and, and ideas. Uh, and people, people like Bob Iger and people like George Bodenheimer they talked about curiosity from the standpoint of how important it was because it oftentimes can serve as the basis to challenge outdated assumptions, you know? And so I remember, I think it was Bob Iger who said, you know what? Curiosity is too oftentimes the fuel source for winning decisions. And if you don't have that fuel source filled up, 
you may not make the right decision or at least the best decision you could have. You write both about George Bodenheimer, who ran ESPN for years superbly with such decency and humanity, not always qualities that are top of mind when you think of the stereotypical TV executive, but he had them. And so did Bob Iger. And he's one of the great CEOs that's ever been running any company. You, you wrote three words that I've never seen put together, that uncertainty fuels him. Right? That's extraordinary because uncertainty for so many people is just a source of anxiety. It's a source of fear. It's a fear that can lead to paralysis. And, and how could uncertainty be used as fuel when you're making decisions to run a multi-billion dollar corporation? Yeah, um, that, that is right out of the Bob Iger profile. Uh, uncertainty fuels Bob. Um, and how can we learn that? It, how can we learn to, to emulate that? I mean, because it's human yeah. nature, that which we don't know is something that we, we could fear. Yeah, I, I pointed out how he, I've known Bob since uh, the late 70s, early 80s. And it, what I've always found about Bob is that he finds the silver lining in any situation. Um, you know, and we talked to a lot of people about Bob and how he illuminates the upside. Uh, we had executives uh, tell us that, you know, Bob would engage on ideas that might seem crazy and easily brushed off by other executives, other people. Um, when others were saying why, he would often challenge uh, the people around him by asking why not. Um, and I think what we learned about Bob is that one of his greatest strengths was being able to see past the latest acquisition and into the future and towards what things should look like from his point of view. And boy, was he prescient. I, I can't tell you enough uh, how that uh, was demonstrated to me time and time again. Uh, and, and if you look at his acquisitions, a Pixar, Lucas, uh, the MCU, the, 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 Marshall, the Marvel character universe. Um, and then he caps it all off uh, with a, what, a $60 billion transaction, a low $70 billion transaction with 21st Century Fox. Uh, pr pretty uh, amazing because Bob gave a speech uh, to the National Association of Broadcasters at their annual meeting way back in the late 90s. He wasn't even chairman and CEO then. Um, and he talked about, if I can find it, Chris, I want to read this to you because it is uh, amazing to me. Uh, this was from in the opening keynote address. Now think about this. This is April of 1998, okay? And in part, he said the following. The multitude of decisions we face today creates quite a challenge to any long-term planning process. None of us knows exactly where we're going, but we can't afford to stand still. The changes affecting our business over the past decade have been much more sweeping and consequential than most of us appreciate. Today's viewer bears no resemblance to the viewer of yesterday, and the changes over the next 10 years will be so vast that no one can predict with any assurance where the business is headed. If we continue to ignore the change or attempt to conduct business as usual, we won't be conducting much business at all. Don't get me wrong. I'm still an optimist about the television business. I'm just not a cheerleader for the status quo. So, That's in the 90s, right? That's when cable was still going strong and nobody even conceived that streaming would, would siphon away. Nobody knew what streaming was. <laughs> and look, look at where he... Look at where... He has look, he stepped down, as you know, at the end of uh, last year um, to, to, to a deserved retirement. 
but his 15 years as CEO uh, was uh, nothing less than transformational for the Walt Disney Company. Uh, and it was because of that statement you led with about uncertainty fuels Bob. Uh, it's reflected in that speech from 1998, all the uncertainty about where our business was going. Uh, he tracked it better than most. When I say prescient, boy, I mean it with a capital P. Uh, it's amazing. And he was just um, uh, someone uh, that I enjoyed spending time with uh, and being around with uh, the, the few times that we were, especially after he moved on from the ABC television network. We didn't see him as often. I have to tell you one last story about Bob Iger. So Bob wrote a best-selling book. And again, I would it's been out several years, but I would encourage your podcast listeners, if they haven't read it, to read it. It's called The Ride of a Lifetime. And one day my wife comes and she, she says, here is a FedEx package for you here. It's from Bob Iger. And I go, really? So I open it up and it's a copy of his book. And on the inside of the book, what he wrote was, in so many words, paraphrasing, Ray, uh, we have had the ride of a lifetime, and it has been an honor for me to have you a part of it. Best always, Bob. So I wrote my book that we're talking about today. And not to be outdone, I fed, had FedExed him a copy, Chris. <laughs> and I put a note in the front that says, Bob, we both had the rides of a lifetime. The difference is yours was the Matterhorn, and mine more closely <laughs> resembled the teacups. Best always, Ray. <laughs> I, I'm sure he appreciated the the original like Disneyland reference. That's good. I mean, it's not always running multi billion dollar corporations though. Uncertainty in the lives of anyone, and then finding a way to say, okay, I'm going to be inspired by that. I'm not going to be scared by that. I'm not going to view a possibility as as or a hurdle as something to be feared, but, but embraced it's when you talk to people, I mean, how difficult is it to get that message across? And, and what are some of the tricks you think to, to employ in an everyday life? If you're not a Bob Iger, but you're facing uncertainty and you're facing challenges and you just see red lights instead of green lights. Well, I think the first thing you understand is um, the need to accept failure and with so many uh, people we interviewed for the book, they framed it in a way where you learn to embrace adversity. It's not something that you fear, to use the word we just used with Bob Iger. Uh, fear was not in his vocabulary. Um, it, it, learn how to accept that, uh, that adversity uh, and, and learn from it uh, and take it with you to the next challenge uh, that you face uh, along the way. I, I just think that is so critical. Michael J. Fox is somebody that I know you're close to, and you've, you've written about him in your book because Michael J. Fox took up golf after being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. It's been 30 years since that diagnosis. You wrote that that was maybe the most optimistic thing he'd ever done, or that was his characterization. Let's take the most challenging game we can think of, the hardest to learn, the most frustrating, and we're going to take it up after getting diagnosed for a disease that is physically debilitating. I find that remarkable and inspiring. Yeah, in the case of Michael, it might be appropriate to go back to the future. Um, <laughs> and by that, I mean, I first met Michael at an affiliate meeting in Orlando, Florida, at the time that Spin City was on the ABC television network's primetime schedule. The show had just moved into the top 10. 
Um, people think of family ties when it comes to Michael in terms of television. I think of I think of Spin City, and it's just to this day it's uh, it saddens me to think about where that show might have gone, could have gone if he hadn't been diagnosed with Parkinson's. So we first met there. Uh, we stayed in touch through the years, uh, and again then I fast forward uh, to uh, sometime in the late you know, around 2009 or uh, 10. Michael wrote a book, and I would encourage your podcast listeners to check it out. It's been around a while, but it's called Always Looking Up, The Adventures of an Incurable Optimist. That book has so many life lessons in it, Chris. Um, and I read that book. ABC did a primetime schedule featuring Michael and, of all people, Bill Murray, playing at a golf course that I play often called Sleepy Hollow, where Bill Murray is a member. And I called Michael's office the next day and I said, I'm involved with a Champions Tour Pro-Am event in Des Moines, Iowa that raises money for kids. I'd love Michael to be my guest. And in 24 hours, he said yes. And he flew up. We played golf together for the first time. And as you pointed out, uh, and as I do in the book as well, playing golf with Michael J. Fox is really a thrill. Uh, here's a guy who took up the games you pointed out after being diagnosed with Parkinson's. And it is amazing to watch his determination uh, to play that game. Uh, it is just so much fun. And we've played golf a half a dozen times since. And every time I do, uh, I walk away thinking that was one of the best experiences of my life. He's very self-deprecating after doing various jobs in show business where he's so gifted and so innately talented. He says, it's great to do something that I suck in. Now he's, <laughs> he's better than that in golf, but what, just imagine most people are, are fearful of that. And he plays golf in these pro events with galleries and people. So he's not afraid to put that out there and, and do it in public. But imagine wanting to take up something because it's tough and because you suck in it, it's great to yeah. play it. <laughs> Yeah, his philosophy on life is amazing, Chris. Um, he has a great line, you know, a life is a ride, a strap in, hang on, and keep your eyes wide open. And he embodies that philosophy himself. And as I say in the book, to do what he's done, to take on challenges and then use them as platforms for change, to, to challenge himself and to do so in a way that inspires others, I don't think it gets much better than that. Yeah, you wrote that he has turned adversity into a platform for growth. That That's a beautiful thing. It applies to lots of people because adversity comes in many forms. To be fair, though, Michael did wrestle with some stuff. He wrote in his own book about turning to alcohol after getting that devastating diagnosis. He was in a pretty dark place for a couple of years. His wife, Tracy, helped him out. His son was young at the time, and and a mirror was kind of put up to him, and it showed him he was headed in a way that he didn't like, and he was able to dig out. And to me, Ray, that makes it even more compelling that he had to wrestle with some dark stuff that, that a lot of people do when they're initially hit with that adversity and then work through it. You know, you and I have a mutual friend who uh, used to be an executive at ESPN named Jerry Madela. Uh, we all called him GMAT. GMAT has a great line in my book, uh, and, it, and it applies in this instance. And, and what GMAT told me was that if you want to impress me, show me your accolades. If you want to impact me, show me your scars. And that, that's what Michael has done in several books uh, in opening up, sharing those personal challenges that he had, 
uh, how he first reacted to being saddled with a Parkinson's diagnosis, and then realizing he could do something with that, and, and establishing the Michael J. Fox Parkinson's Research Foundation. It's amazing. Joining forces with uh, a larger-than-life figure like Michael himself in, in Muhammad Ali. Um, and as Michael is fond of saying, who else would you rather have in your corner uh, than the great one? One of the great things about hanging with winners that turned out uh, to be special to me was that we talked to winners uh, to, to do the book, to write the book, but we also talked to winners about other winners. And in one such case, it was George Stephanopoulos talking about Michael J. Fox. And again, he knows Michael as well as anyone. And Michael told us that just being around him is an awful lot of fun. You'd never know the burdens he's carrying because he addresses the challenges with his famous optimism. And he maintains all that, not in a saccharine way, but in a way that's rooted in reality. Does not deny what's happening or deny what he's dealing with, but rather Michael puts it in perspective. He simply shows everyone the power of perseverance and hope while addressing whatever it is that life throws at you. That's yeah, that's beautiful. Pretty remarkable it, it is, insight. Yeah, it is. It, authentic, not saccharine. And I think uh, he, he embodies all that. Boy, playing golf with him, playing golf with him and Bill Murray would be, that would be a life peak experience. That, that, <laughs> I, I'm just imagining those two together. That, that would be a lot of laughs. You write, you write about Jay Williams in your book. And Jay Williams is someone that had to pivot and had to reinvent himself and had to face a different kind of adversity. All-American at Duke, won a championship. He's headed to certain NBA stardom, gets in a motorcycle accident, and that career is taken away from him. Of course, he's gone on uh, to a career in television. But, but to, to face that kind of disappointment, that kind of loss of your identity, right, as an athlete, as a basketball player. And, and I know you introduced him with a Martin Luther King line. You, you said, we must accept finite disappointments but never lose infinite hope. That's powerfully said, um, like many things that MLK said, but easier said than done. I mean, that's, a, that's more than a disappointment. That's a devastation. And he found a way to not lose hope and to pivot. And Jay's an interesting, interesting character in your book as well. And I think like Michael J. Fox, I'd like to start by going back to the future, Chris. A lot of your podcast listeners might not know what you and I know about Jay, and that is what a remarkable basketball player it was. You have a lot of young people listening. It's been 20 years since, since Jay stepped away from Duke University. It's been 21 years since he led the Blue Devils to a national championship. And I'm not sure a lot of people, if they see him on TV today, know just what a great player he was. In my lifetime, he had the quickest first step off a dribble of anybody I've ever seen. He's amazing. And, and, and he led the Blue Devils, as I said, to the 2001 National Championship. They lost in his junior year. He turned pro after that. So in his last year, junior year, um, you know, they lost that game, uh, an Elite Eight game to the eventual national champion, who I think was Indiana. Don't hold me to that. Um, and they lost by one point. And so here he is. Uh, at the pinnacle of his career and turns pro. Great trivia question. He was the consensus player of the year, the Wooden Award winner, uh, you name it, uh, NABC uh, All-American, uh, consensus All-American. Um, he was the number two player chosen in the draft. You remember who was number one? Uh, that year, no, I don't. Yao Ming. <laughs> okay. 
That's a trick. It's kind of a trick question. Jay was the best college basketball player by far, but he was chosen number two uh, because of Yao Ming being drafted ahead of him. So now, now I'm going to go to your question. With that backdrop, to make sure people know what a special, special player uh, he's drafted number two by the Chicago Bulls, and he goes and he plays one rookie year, uh, and he has a horrific accident that's been well documented, and that accident put him not at the intersection of his career, but at the intersection of life itself. And it, and as we talk in the book, he could have chosen to stop. Uh, he could have stayed where he was, but he chose instead to make the choice to see the adversity that he was confronted with as an opportunity, an opportunity to learn and to grow and to move forward, all the while knowing and having to accept, which was very difficult for him if you read his own book, where he, like Michael J. Fox, boy, he shows scars, mm. not just, it's not about accolades. He talks about it uh, and how he had to put uh, aside the fact that he would never play professional basketball again. It was no longer in his path. And as like he likes to say, it was no longer a part of his journey. So I think that the story of Jake Williams in the book is so instructive to people uh, with everyday decisions uh, that they have a choice to make and having to understand that they're inevitable setbacks. Well, maybe not as tragic and, and severe and graphic as Jay's, um, that it's their choice to learn from experiences and to find ways to navigate them differently um, the next time it comes up. And but Jay was what Jay told us is that he believes strongly that too often people get fixated and become so myopic, uh, myopic that they may have lost, uh, that they don't pay attention to what they could have learned, to what they could have gained from that adversity and that negative experience. That's powerful. Well, you know, we talked about curiosity and we talked about character and we talked about uh, embracing adversity. Um, another one is, is mentors. Uh, George Bodenheimer talked about the critical importance of, of mentors and to not think you have to do things on your own. Um, George said, made the point that life doesn't, the world doesn't work that way. Um, you need to reach out and learn from others who can fill that mentoring role for you. And then when you have the opportunity 10 or 20 years later, it's time for you to pay that back and serve as a mentor to others. You know, Chris, in our interview with you, you, you talked about the, uh, uh, the influence that the late John Saunders had on you. He, he, in essence, had a mentoring role for you, did he not? Oh, John was a very important mentor. There were others, but he was just older, wiser, more experienced, and he was generous with his time. And, and I looked at his example. I, without that, I'd have been lost. I think you, you come into this, this business like any business like anything in life, I, I think approaching it with confidence, but humility. And it's very hard when you're young and you think you've got a future, you think you've got potential to, to listen far more than you talk when you're new at something. And I, I, I got smacked down, Ray, I was in a newsroom in Denver. I got publicly humiliated by a, an old veteran and I had it coming because I didn't even know what I didn't know. But you're on there, you're, you're sure yourself. And, and that was one of the most important things that ever happened in my broadcasting career. I always use that as an example. I wasn't on the air, but it was one of the most important experiences I had. So in coming to ESPN, as, as I looked 11 years old, I was hosting a high school sports show. There were a lot of folks who had done a lot of stuff in TV sports at that point. Um, hopefully by that point, I'm sure 
a certain percentage thought, who is this obnoxious kid? But, but it was John Saunders and others who were, who were kind and, and just by their example, uh, were, were great mentors. I, you're right. I don't know how you do this without that. All of us need to, to watch and listen more than we talk at certain stages of our development and, and learn from others. You, you talked about leadership. I do. I'm talking about leadership. And, and the, the important things that you found that leaders have, by leader, I don't mean running a country or running a company. It, it could be something much more modest than that. But I think we all know that having qualities of leadership, that's important in life in different, in different ways. And for me, leadership starts with awareness. I've seen leaders that are very aware of themselves, of others. And if they are, then they can have empathy and compassion. And to me, that's a very important aspect of leadership. Leadership does not getting other people to do what you want them to do or bending their will to suit your purposes. That, that I think, is misidentified as leadership. In the various leaders in, in different fields you came across, what did you find was most important? Well, one of the leaders that I would point to is one that was your leader. Uh, who I had the opportunity and the great uh, privilege to work with, and that's George Bodenheimer. We touched on George earlier, but, uh, you, you know, George, George and Bob Iger and other leaders that I've seen, many of them are almost introverted in nature. You know, Bob Iger is not an outwardly a flamboyant person at all. Neither was George. And, and maybe it has everything to do with humble beginnings. Uh, as you know, George started in the mailroom at ESPN. One of his jobs... Uh, and, and no one loves telling this story better than Dick Vitale himself, but one of George's early jobs as a mail clerk was to go pick up Dick at the Hartford airport and get him to Bristol to work. <laughs> and and that story has become uh, quite legendary through the years and like a great fish story, that fish is now uh, four feet long. But but the point is, is George did start there. And he, you know, from the mail room to the boardroom uh, is the subtitle of his book. Uh, and it's true. Uh, Bob Iger started uh, as a production assistant at the ABC Television Network. Ann Sweeney, who is uh, uh, figures prominently in the book and contributed so many uh, inspiring thoughts, uh, she rose to the same level as George Bodenheimer. Uh, I worked with both of them as chairman of the ABC board. George was uh, one co-chair of the Disney Media Networks. Ann was the other one. George oversaw all of ESPN and oversaw all the other media networks. And started at the ABC Television Network as a page while working in college. Okay, so maybe that contributes to a word that you used earlier, which is humility—something uh, that great leaders have. So, but so for all the introverts is, out there, the introverts out there listening, could you know need not be ruled out of leadership positions just because for them maybe it isn't second nature to reach out and to be forceful with your personality, but leadership in another form? Well, lead, I'm fond of saying that leadership is not innate, okay? Um, there's no single answer or path uh, to becoming a good uh, or effective leader. Um, but it's, I think uh, the people that become great leaders uh, don't consider themselves to be a boss uh, with people that work for them. Uh, they see themselves as a colleague who works with those people uh, reporting to them. Uh, they're good listeners. They ask the right questions. Um, and leadership, I think to your point, extends far beyond business. It extends to how we choose to live our life. 
uh, in many respects, and that'll make you a better leader. I, I have a saying, your professional life and your personal life are two halves of the same sphere. Uh, you can't be really good in your professional life and really lousy in your personal life and vice versa, in my view. And so I, I think that in both business and life, uh, it's about inspiring others when it comes to leadership. It's helping others to be their best selves while you're working to be the best version of yourself, trying to be the kind of person that you'll be happy to live with the rest of your life. Okay. Why why do you say that, Ray? I mean, someone might listen, wait a second. We all know people that have had enormous success financially, success in business, yet their personal life is a train wreck. They have no work-life balance. They're unable to, or it it could, the reverse could happen, but but more famously, it's people that that are seen as these ultimate high achievers. If you look behind the curtain, they're not successful in their personal life. They're not. They don't have great relationships with friends and colleagues, and and so on. Well, one of the things about working on this book is that I learned that what it means to be a winner is is far more subjective and ambiguous than it is qualitative and clear. In my view, in my definition of what it means to be a winner, uh, you have to take you have to take the entire sphere. You don't get to break it up. You don't get to break off half and take the position that the other half doesn't matter. Uh, I, I think that that it's about achieving mutual success uh, with others around you at work uh, and also creating uh, a life that you're happy with at home whether it's a spouse or your kids or your grandkids or whoever. And it's also about, it's about giving back. You know, when we talk about leadership, the big thing today, people talk about, they, they put a, a, an adjective in front of it, Chris, you hear it more and more. It's called servant leadership. And I think servant leadership is where anybody listening to this podcast who really aspires to be the best version of themselves and to help others around them do the same, I think that's where they should go. Uh, That's about influencing others uh, to serve the greater good. Uh, The best leaders are focused on serving other people and and their community at large. Uh, We spend a lot of time in the book, people like George Bodenheimer and others talk about giving back and the affirmative obligation that you as a leader, you as a winner have um, to reach out, use your connections, use your relationships in a way uh, that influences others to do good, stepping out and doing what you can to help others and the community. I I think that's the kind of leadership, that's the kind of winner that I hope that we focused on in this book. Yeah, that's beautifully said. Thanks for sharing that. I hope people listen to that, dive into that, dissect it, and take that to heart. Success. I mean, I think more and more people feel like they deserve the right to find what success is for them. And I, I think yeah, it, it's, it's something I try to preach to young people when I'm asked. I, I try not to say, you must do this. I, I try to rarely say, you should do that. I, I just try to relate what's been important to me and what I've learned. And, and I think that so many people, Ray, approach their life like it's a business and want to define success in their life, the same way success is often defined in business terms, profits, uh, what your company is worth, your market share, the price of your shares, and your life is not a business, right? We don't have to define successful as 
you know, how much money you made and the, the amount of toys that you own, how elaborate those toys are, whether your toys are better than your neighbor's toys. But it's sometimes hard to get people to see it or, or be reprogrammed because so much of what success means revolves around money domination, you know? Um, I, I would, um, I would agree with you wholeheartedly. I, I don't think winning or success, uh, is about, um, I don't think it's about money. It's not about in our business, Chris, it's not about ratings and revenue. It's not about stock prices and accomplishments and accolades and awards and then inductions into so many halls of fame. Um, I, I think it's about, going through a life where you do get knocked down uh, and you were courageous enough uh, to get back up uh, and to understand that winning is about getting up. Uh, and really it's about, I think you, what you're saying in so many words, it's about keeping your priorities straight. It's about knowing who matters and who doesn't. It's about knowing what matters and what doesn't. And I think if you're lucky enough to have a loving family, and caring friends and a job that you think meets a purpose in this world, then I think you've won. There's a great quote in the book from Diane Sawyer who said to us that if you've got that intersection of your joy and the feeling that it's meeting a need of the world, then you're home. That's your whole career. Quote, unquote, Diane Beautifully said. Couldn't say it any better. <laughs> no, she's an ABC News legend. I, I told you before that that's another sentence in the book that just jumped out at me because it's discussed so much. I mean, there are millions of books and podcasts about success and what it means and how you get there. And and she said, it's the moment when your purpose meets joy, and that is as succinctly put as I've ever heard it. And and it, it can't be put better. She goes on to say that the thing that you want to do is the thing that you get to do. And that's obviously talked about by lots of people when, when you love what you do and not try to convince yourself that what you do is something you should be passionate about when it organically springs from, from what you, what you uh, see as your purpose. And then what, what she does is she takes it another step. And she says that when, when what you want to do is what you get to do, and then that somehow makes the world better. And that, I think, is a trickier component for people because... Someone could say, hey, you know, Ray, I, I love surfing. That's my passion to get up every day at being one with the waves. And if you can work in a surf shop and, and be passionate about every day doing that, I'm not going to criticize that at all. But can you find a way to somehow make the world a little bit better? Whatever that is, whether that's spreading your message, whether it's mentoring, it, it doesn't need to be super dramatic. But I love that component that, hey, it's not just doing what we want to do and getting paid for it, it's finding a way to extend that and make the world better in some way based on that. So many of the winners we talked to, Chris, uh, in keeping with Diane's um, punctuation point of meeting a need of the world for that surfer who, or, or whoever else, <laughs> so many of the winners we talked to um, made a point of saying uh, that they would be disappointed if they didn't leave the world better than uh, the way they found it. Um, they said it in different ways, but they, in essence, conveyed that message. And it is about meeting a need of the world. It is about giving back. It is what Dick Vitale talked about in his profile, 
but nobody has done it better than him uh, when it comes to lending a hand, lending a helping hand to those who need it. My gosh, uh, is there anybody who's done that? Uh, and you and I are proud, uh, I know, to call him a mutual friend of ours. Uh, is there anybody that does it better than Dick uh, <laughs> throughout his uh, throughout his career? Did you? I'm going to have to ask you this. Did you see just yesterday uh, in the big lead a story from uh, Kyle Coster? Do you know Kyle? I don't know him. I do know the name. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So he wrote an article about. I believe the headline was Dick Vitale's voice, and as you know, he's not talking now. Mm -hmm. Dick Vitale's voice louder than ever. So if I can just read an excerpt from them, because it ties in exactly with what we're sure. talking about. And what 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 uh, uh, Kyle wrote uh, in this beautiful essay of his is the following. There exists a perfect opportunity for all those who care to follow the template Dick Vitale himself has built, to show the same kind of compassion he showed, to conjure up a fraction of the hustle he gives every day, both in front of the camera and off screen to think of others and hold a warm thought for their success, to show the willingness to process some of the same pain and challenges they are processing, to have optimism in the face of bad news and to plunge ahead undeterred. Beautiful. That is Dick Vitale, our friend to a T. Dick, Dick was a guest on the podcast. We talked a lot about this before his cancer diagnosis, but we talked about the dinner and I, I know Dick gets very caught up in the numbers and, and he wants to set records and he wants to, you know, continue to raise the bar. Look, he's a coach. There's a scoreboard. Okay. And he sometimes sees the fight against cancer as a scoreboard. And I, I'm not here to, to punch holes in that, but I did try to tell him, Dick, forget the numbers. Like I walk out of there. So many people walk out of there inspired, moved, humbled, wanting to do more, wanting to be better and be more generous. And think about the power of that, not just for him, but so many others. I, I think that, Ray, if, if we can, through our decency or compassion or generosity or, or giving back in, in some small way, when someone leaves our presence, do they walk away thinking those things that everyone who goes to the Vital Gala thinks is, how can I be better? based on his example or her example. I think that that's, that's just awesome. You know, you have throughout your career treated people in their words, and this is in the part of your book, I'm not going to embarrass you, but you've lived a life where you've made people feel valued. You've made them feel heard. You've made them feel important. And that's so innately human to want others to, you know, give that back to you. My Angela's quote, people will forget what you said, forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. Different ways to say that. It, it doesn't need to be about building a legacy when you're gone to those who you knew. It could be about how you treat people on a daily basis. How can people get better at that and embrace the idea that, that how they make others feel is more important than what they say and even what they do sometimes. Well, I think, I think you go back to the basics we discussed earlier in the podcast um, and it's to stand back uh, and it's to look at uh, how we approach others and do we approach them with kindness, uh, respect, empathy. Do we listen uh, to, to others um, and do we engage them in a way 
uh, where we're, we're helping them uh, per, in a way that maybe helps ourselves along the way. I, I don't know. Uh, I, I was I was humbled and even embarrassed by a number of the things that uh, people we interviewed told my writing partner, Rob Gray. Um, uh, some of them were funny. I love uh, Bob Bowlesby, the former athletic director at Iowa, who I've known a long time. And then he was at Stanford. And as you know, he's now the commissioner of the Big 12 Conference. Um, he had a line in there that uh, said that I always had a smile on my face uh, and I was always uh, always optimistic. But his great line was that he could always trust me. He could always take my word. Uh, and he said, and Ray is in an industry with a lot of snake oil, so, uh, snake oil salesmen, uh, and that is a rare quality. And I, I, after I read that in the transcript, I called Bob and I said, would you like to name names who you were thinking about when you said that? <laughs> so to, I, I'd like to bring you, it It'd back, be a much shorter list of people who aren't that. And you're on that list. But yeah. they, 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 Stereotypes yeah. exist yeah, for a you reason. And I know. Right? <laughs> you and I know there's some great people and there are some snake oil salesmen to use Bob Bowlesby's words. But bottom line is, um, you know, I, I, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, uh, optimism and we talk about gratitude. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, I've just been influenced by so many uh, people that I've been blessed uh, to, to cross paths with. People who have truly enriched my career, truly graced my life. And to the extent that, whatever extent, uh, what you said about me earlier holds up, uh, Chris, it's probably because of what I've gained from others. And that's why I wrote this book, is I wanted to share those thoughts uh, and, 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 and pass those along to others, as I said at the outset. Uh, that may, they may be inspired in the same way that those who we profiled and interview have inspired me. And so I'll, I'll bring it, I'll wrap it up with this, My, Michael J. Fox. We started with Michael. Michael has beautiful thoughts on this um, and he talks about optimism and he makes the point that it's really rooted in gratitude, that optimism is sustainable when you keep coming back to that word, gratitude. And what follows from that? Acceptance. Now that's again profound. He went on to say that accepting whatever it is that's happened to you and learning to accept it for what it is is what it's about. It doesn't mean that you can't endeavor to change, doesn't mean that you have to accept it as some form of punishment or a penance or anything else, but just to put it in its proper place. And if you do that, then you'll see how much the rest of your life you have to thrive in and then move on and be your best person possible. Optimism, gratitude, that's where it starts. Optimism, gratitude, also a great place to end this. So grateful to Ray Cole for his time. If some of the ideas we talked about spoke to you, I invite you to check out his book, Hanging with Winners, A Lifetime of Connections, Anecdotes, and Lessons Learned. As always, grateful to my co-executive producer, Jennifer Dempster, and to Jason Weichel for his editing skills, and to you for listening, supporting, and providing feedback on the podcast. I'll talk to you soon.